Hello and welcome to another episode of Canada mit C, or in English, Canada with a C. My name is Annika Vekinis. I'm the project manager of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. Today's episode will take a closer look at Canada's past and present relations with its indigenous population. Indigenous people is a collective name for the original peoples of North America and their descendants. Based on the 2016 census by Statistic Canada, more than 1.67 million people identify themselves as indigenous, which is equivalent to 5% of Canada's population. The Canadian Constitution recognizes three groups of indigenous peoples, First Nations, Inuit and Métis. The First Nations people were the original inhabitants of the land that is now Canada and represent the largest group of indigenous people with about 1 million people, 50 nations and 50 indigenous languages. The Inuit primarily inhabit the northern regions of Canada and live in parts of Labrador and Quebec, Nunavut and the Northwest Territories with a population of about 65,000 people. The Métis understand themselves as a people that emerged as a political community linked to the Red River settlement area in the 19th century. Currently, about 600,000 people have identified themselves as Métis on the census. All three indigenous groups have their distinct cultural practices, languages, arts, histories and traditions. Canada celebrates its National Day, simply called Canada Day, every year on July 1st. Traditionally, this holiday is celebrated with backyard barbecues and fireworks, much like July 4th in the United States. However, this year, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the day would be a time for reflection. The recent discovery of unmarked graves containing the remains of Indigenous children has shocked many Canadians, caused deep grief in Indigenous communities, and sparked a new debate about Canada's colonial policies. Canada's colonial past is widely acknowledged by the Canadian government, and one of the most striking features of this past is the residential school system. Between 1893 and 1996, more than 150,000 Indigenous children were forcibly separated from their families and placed in schools that were run by the Canadian government or Catholic Church. In 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was tasked with documenting the history of the schools and concluded that the establishment and operation of residential schools were a key component of a Canadian government policy of cultural genocide. With this very brief introduction to a rather large and complex topic, I would like to introduce today's expert, Professor Christa Scholz who has kindly agreed to participate in this episode. Professor Scholz was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta. She completed a PhD in Comparative Politics at Princeton University. She is an Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at McGill University. She researches and teaches in the areas of settler Indigenous policies and politics, comparative and Canadian politics, constitutionalism and federalism. Her work has appeared in the Canadian Journal of Political Science, the Canadian Journal of Law and Society, and the University of Toronto Law Journal. She has published a book on the comparative development of Indigenous land claim negotiation policies in Canada, New Zealand, Australia and the United States. Today's interview will be conducted by Christina Webb, Project Assistant of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. Christina, over to you now. 
Thank you, Professor Schultz, for joining us today. Your research focus is on Indigenous policy and politics. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose this subject and how has the most recent events impacted your work? I started this kind of journey uh, as, a, as a PhD student uh, when I went to start my doctoral studies. And I, um, I did, was not going to do anything like this. I wanted to do a completely different subject matter. Uh, but then I kind of fell out of love, out of that subject matter, and um, uh, kind of stumbled around to trying to understand some of the politics that was happening in Canada at the time in the 1990s. And uh, then I was interested in comparing what, what I saw was happening in Canada with other countries, particularly Australia and New Zealand. And so when I dug a little deeper, um, it came to my attention that what we're really at the kind of heart of the questions I was interested in was this encounter between Indigenous peoples and the Canadian state. Um, and so trying to understand uh, the rights that Indigenous peoples claim for themselves uh, and the authority that the Canadian state claims for itself, that there is a great deal of conflict between those two visions of, of this place. Um, and so that's what I came to study, um, really to understand the responses of governments to uh, the demands of Indigenous peoples um, for their rights, particularly to land. So that's how I came to um, do the work that I now do. Um, it was not something at the time very well studied. I thought I could make a contribution. Um, and it's kind of a lesson of keeping your mind open when you go study, that you can study different things that you would have never thought you would when you started. So that is um, kind of the start of my journey. Great, thank you. So for our German viewers, can you give a brief explanation of the history of Indigenous policy in Canada? Okay, so I think this is in some ways an impossible <laughs> task, uh, but uh, nevertheless, I will do my best. So the problem, of course, is that um, it's hard and that the only way to be brief is to actually highlight some things while down downplaying or obscuring other things. Uh, but I'll try nevertheless to give your viewers um, a way of thinking about or kind of a basic way of, of understanding some eras of um, history that I think are really important to understand what's happening now. So it's not irrelevant to talk about the past. It's really important um, to understand the context for what we're living in now. Um, so, so going back, I would say, um, there is this really important kind of age of first, first contact, of intersocietal contact, starting in the 1500s till I'd say about the mid-1700s, where much was established, um, uh, exploration of the continent, trading networks, commercial networks between um, Europeans and Indigenous peoples in kind of northern North America. Um, important um, involvement and engagement by Christian missionaries. So contact in a kind of religious or sacred sense, uh, military alliances, and some limited settlement, usually settlement related to 
uh, trading networks, particularly the fur trade. So there is a whole, you know, long time of um, contact where I would say Indigenous peoples in this territory had uh, important power and the upper hand. Um, this started to change. Um, so in the mid 1700s, the British and the French started fighting over who uh, would take control over the territory as far as they were concerned in terms of that colonial competition. And um, long story short is that the British won over the French. And for my purposes today, what's important is that in the 1760s through a royal proclamation, um, the British monarch, King George, made a really important policy decision um, that would carry through until today, would have these echoes till today. And in this, in this document called the, the Royal Proclamation, the British crown uh, promised to engage with uh, what the, the monarch wrote in this document, his Indian subjects, that the British crown would engage with Indigenous peoples in this territory uh, in order to negotiate with them. So the British said, we were going to establish a negotiation policy uh, with Indigenous peoples uh, for what the British were particularly interested in was to acquire uh, what they called the Indian right of occupancy. So the rights that the British recognized uh, Indigenous peoples of having to occupy um, the land over which the British were now asserting their own sovereignty. So for German viewers, this is really important because it started a treaty-making history of engagement um, that when Canada was created in 1867, um, that the Canadian government continued. So with the creation of you know, this country called the, Domin the Dominion of Canada in 1867, the chief um, priorities of the Canadian government were to expand, to consolidate that power, and to settle. And as far as the government was concerned, what that required was quite simply to get Indigenous peoples out of the way. So that required a displacement, sometimes just, you know, physical geographic displacement, having Indigenous people move out of the way, but also that they should um, also kind of a cultural displacement, um, deeply ingrained in the thought of um, people in 1867, uh, was that um, as non-Christian peoples, Indigenous peoples were uncivilized, right? They were viewed as inferior. They were viewed as, uh, and the language used was that of savagery. And so part of um, a central policy or motivating philosophy underlining um, Canadian policy towards Indigenous peoples was the civilizing mission. So to um, to make that happen. So that happened in a couple of ways, uh, many ways, but there's two that I will highlight um, in particular. One was 
treaty making. So to continue this policy of engaging in treaties with Indigenous peoples, for the purpose as far as the Canadian government was concerned, primarily to have agreements where Indigenous peoples would cede, surrender, and release. That's the language used in these treaties. Cede, surrender, and release um, their rights to a large parcel uh, territory of land in return for um, some consideration, whether that be um, lands called reserves over which uh, Indigenous peoples would have exclusive access, um, annuities, payments, um, and also um, things that would allow uh, these communities to um, transition to a new way of life, right? So ammunition provisions, education provisions in one particular treaty, Treaty 6, um, a medicine chest clause. So there was this um, engagement of treaty making where the Canadian government entered into uh, legal obligations with Indigenous peoples for the purpose of moving them out of the way, physically out of the way, as far as the federal government is concerned. Um, the other kind of big piece to this is uh, the federal government also started to regulate the lives of particularly First Nations peoples through statute, through law, uh, particularly a law called the Indian Act. And this Indian Act both recognized treaty rights um, but also became increasingly coercive and restrictive and became the primary tool to try to assimilate Indigenous peoples um, um, into, I guess, Canada. Um, and that kind of assimilation mission is the context under which the residential school system was set up. So there's lots of these changes um, and... I'll just note that Canada didn't get into making any treaties anymore as of the 1920s. Um, it kind of figured it didn't need to. Um, and it was really after kind of the Second World War, starting the 1970s, where uh, Indigenous peoples in Canada really started to build political advocacy organizations that really changed the politics. And so there has been a resurgence um, and a real change in politics since then. And part of that led to the um, recognition uh, or the constitutional entrenchment of Aboriginal and treaty rights within, in the Canadian Constitution in 1982. So that is a brief, incomplete history, but hopefully helpful. Thank you so much, Professor. I think that that was a great start to an introduction on a very detailed topic. And to dive in a bit deeper and go off some of the language you were just using. Um, it's common practice for government agencies, universities, and other institutions to acknowledge Indigenous territory. So, for example, here in Ottawa, Carleton University acknowledges the location of its campus on the traditional unceded land of the Algonquin Nation. So, why do people use land acknowledgements, and what's the meaning behind words like unsurrendered and unseated. Okay. Um, it relates directly back to the language included within the treaties that I just talked about. So um, I think back it up just a second. 
Um, state, states make the claim that they are either the owners of land outright, what Canadians would refer to as crown land, or that states are sovereign over those lands. So that states claim for themselves the authority to make rules about land that landowners have to comply with. So in that story, there's, there's, there's nothing about Indigenous peoples in that story. It's about state power. And so a land acknowledgement really complicates those assumptions. It complicates those state, those claims that the state makes. A land acknowledgement says, like when, when, you're, when you're doing a land acknowledgement, you're, you're recognizing that the land on which you work or you live is a space where an Indigenous nation or a political community also asserts rights and responsibilities. And so it acknowledges that this place, this territory is complicated and contested in terms of a political and a legal space. Um, and so when we use the language of, of you know, here, uh, this is unceded or unsurrendered territory, that means that the um, Indigenous community uh, of this territory did not engage in uh, a treaty to surrender or cede rights. Um, so it's an acknowledgement of um, a treaty history where that treaty history exists, um, or an acknowledgement that there is there is work to still be done. To provide our German viewers with a little bit more information and context, can you shed some light on the history of residential schools in Canada, what their purpose was, and why they were incredibly problematic? So this is how I will try to talk about a topic that is complicated and nuanced. Um, it starts with understanding that the history of kind of an education policy and in Indigenous peoples in Canada is deeply, deeply steeped in a Christianizing view of the world. So, you know, back in 1867, right, the federal government, rather than the provinces in our federation, were given the power, according to our constitution, to legislate and develop an education policy for uh, Indigenous children. The word used in the constitution is Indian. But education for what? Like, for what purpose? And the overriding understanding of what the purpose of educating Indigenous peoples was, was to fix what was wrong with them, right? To, if you understand Indigenous peoples as uncivilized, as uncivilized, and key to civilizing people, first of all, that that is a good thing, um, the key to doing that is to Christianize them and to kind of take away, weaken, get rid of their own cultural understandings of the world. So, the central animating idea here in terms of an education policy was that the point of educating children was to remake them, to change them, to um, prohibit the transmission of language, to prohibit and stop the transmission of culture. Um, and in its extreme, that requires removal of children from the family, right? And that this is not just about teaching trigonometry. It's not about teaching biology. This is about fundamentally remaking the students in front of you. And if I characterize this this way, 
um, that it is to understand the central animating purpose to be a violent one, right? Um, that to civilize, to Christianize was to fundamentally change, uh, to remake, and that that, as Indigenous peoples have argued, was a, is, is violence. And so we need to understand that the physical, sexual violence that occurred in these schools is layered on an existing kind of violent structure. So that's, that's, not, that's not a happy thing to talk about. Um, but, you know, history is complex. It's nuanced. Um, I'll just say that um, the history of residential schools, you know, 1880s to the 1900s is about growth. It's about expansion. Um, it's about setting up a system where the federal government would pay but the churches, Christian denominations, Christian churches would actually administer the schools. So it was very much a partnership between um, the state and religious authorities. Um, and um, there's lots of, anyway, there's lots of variation in where these schools were, how they were set up, um, how isolated children were or were not. Um, by 1920, attendance was mandatory, so they changed this thing called the Indian Act to make attendance by children mandatory. Um, so what this meant is that children attended schools at either the threat of or actual use of force by the state, so the police could come and take your kids away. Um, and um, the apex uh, of that system was really till about the 40s and 50s. Um, and it started to wane, say, about the 1960s, um, when they were secularized and then gradually closed. So controversial for all the reasons that I just talked about, um, but also for the trauma of the survivors, trauma of the parents and communities, and for the way that that trauma has reached and replicated across generations. So that's how I would talk about it. Thank you. So staying on the topic a little bit, but bringing it into current issues, Johnny mm -hmm. McDonald has been recent subject of a lot of controversy, and many Canadians have mixed reactions um, on how his legacy should be preserved in Canada. Mm -hmm. So for our German viewers, Johnny McDonald was Canada's first prime minister, and he had a profound role in the implementation of residential schools. So what do you think? Do you think taking down statues and renaming places is a viable solution? How do we deal with this part of Canada's past and its most prominent figures? Yeah, I mean, John A. Macdonald was a, was a key figure in Canadian political history. He was prime minister for a long time. Um, so he is... Um, kind of a profound architect of um, Canada as a country. Um, I want to kind of my answer to this question is to back up a little bit uh, because I think in this case, what the the case of Canada and um, John A. McDonald statues is part of a bigger 
bigger question, right? It's a it's about a politics of commemorate commemoration in public spaces. So what are we like? What do we do when we're putting a statue or a memorial of some sort in a public space? And to me, what this means um, is by putting a statue or a memorial, a memorial, excuse me, somewhere, it's saying. Like we in the here and now, we believe that this event or this person is really important for these particular reasons. And that we, this is not just a private matter, right? That this is really something important and that we are right and that we are correct to tell all of those who will frequent this space now into the future that, you know, this is something important to know. So if you put up a statue or a memorial that act is not unbiased. It's not neutral. It's a deeply biased thing to do. And that these are biases, these statues, for instance, are biases that just that get incorporated into our public spaces, into our built environments. And so we just kind of walk by these biases all the time. So the question that's interesting to me is, you know, what we're what we're doing is we're watching people grapple with how how bound are we today to the beliefs and convictions and biases and perspectives of our predecessors, right? So what are the biases that we hold today? And should we just put up new statues, like add to the biases that we build into our public space? Um, Or should we take down old statues? Should we unbuild them? Should we literally trash them? and thereby reject the biases of our predecessors? Or do we put them in a museum? Like, what do we do? So to me, this is all about how we engage with our past. And what, do, like, what, what are we conveying about what our current commitments are? So I think reasonable people can disagree about how, what to do. Um, you know, do you put old statues in a museum? Do you just take them down? Like, what do you do? Do you put a new statue alongside an old statue? I think those are reasonable disagreements. I just don't think it's reasonable or correct to argue that our built environments are somehow neutral. Like they're just neutral history books fashioned into concrete or brass or marble and that therefore we can't touch them. We can't change them. Um, And so that's what I think this is all kind of about. And so um, am I kind of personally attached to John A's statue being somewhere? No. Um, I, compl- I understand the arguments about why people are taking that, are saying that statue needs to go. Like, I understand that argument. But I also understand this is a really deeply political thing. Although I'm a political scientist, so that's what you should kind of expect me to say to some degree. Thank you, Professor. Um, you definitely pose some interesting and critical questions. Indigenous people in Canada face many hardships, to name a few. Drug use, mental health issues, lack of safe drinking water on reserves, challenges of preserving their own culture and language, discrimination, and overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Canadian prisons. Do you think these hardships are rooted in any similar cause, and how can Indigenous communities be better supported? I mean, I think... I think that intergenerational impact of trauma is real. Like that's real. And this reality plays itself out in lots of different ways in indigenous communities. And they can play themselves out in the statistics. 
that you just mentioned. But I also think the answer is more than just residential schools happened. It's true, but incomplete. Um, I think the answer is really also deeply about how we understand Indigenous peoples as being authorities themselves and how that how they and their political systems relate to the authority of the Canadian state. So I remember, you know, listening to an Indigenous, indigenous scholar at an academic conference, you know, such as one does, once say, you know, the problem isn't settler colonialism. The problem is settler colonialism. It's not settlers per se. So if we accept that colonialism is really about denying Indigenous peoples the authority to make rules for themselves and kind of in our political systems, in our shared territories, to me, that's the big picture. Like that's the big abstract picture behind the statistics that are often easier to focus on. It's a question about who gets to decide about prison policy, who gets to decide um, what the rules on what, 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 what is crime and what is not. Who gets to decide about housing construction, about whether pipelines are built, about which languages are taught in schools, uh, in which schools, about who has control over, over um, education policy? To me, those statistics are backgrounded by those bigger philosophical questions. So that might sound a bit abstract, but that's kind of really what I feel to be the case. The Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Crisis has been a critical issue in Canada for a long time. Indigenous women and girls that are at disproportionate risk and face among the highest rates of violent and nonviolent victimization out of all population groups in Canada. According to Statistics Canada, Indigenous women are six times more likely to be killed than non-Indigenous women. What factors contribute to these women and girls facing such a high risk for violence and harm. Like, why, why, why does misogyny exist? Like, why do women face violence in a way and an extent that men do not? Like, and every woman on the planet has asked herself this question, I think, at some point in her life. So why is this violence and vulnerability normalized? And why do Indigenous women and girls deal with more of it um, than at higher rates than non-Indigenous women do? Like, those are, like, big questions. And I don't necessarily have, I don't have the answers to these questions. They puzzle me deeply. Um, But I think that the histories and the policies that I've alluded to, described, at least in a preliminary way, should help um, all of us understand why Indigenous women would, on average, be more marginalized, more unsafe, more traumatized, more killed. It's not by accident. Since July, Canada has had a new governor general, Mary Simon, who is an Inuk from northern Quebec, and she is the first Indigenous person to hold the post. For Mm -hmm. our German viewers, the governor general is the Queen of England's uh, representative in Canada. What key role will Mary Simon play in reconciliation in our country? Well, it's kind of a little bit up to Mary Simon, but um, 
I want to talk, I want to answer this question by giving a little bit, your viewers, a little bit more of a context in terms of the crown, right? In terms of the role of the queen, not just in Canada, but with respect to Indigenous peoples. So this is the context in which uh, Mary Simon's appointment has been made. So Canada was created again in 1867, a new country, but still part of the British Empire. And so the choices made that the Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland would be Canada's head of state. So the, the Governor General um, exercises legal executive power as the Queen's representative. So that has since changed a little bit in that um, we, we refer to the Queen now as the Queen of Canada as the head of state. Um, and that is a legal office that Elizabeth Windsor currently occupies. So going back to the historical treaties that I was talking about, it's important for your viewers to understand that the historic treaties that were negotiated after 1867, um, in, in particular, were conducted by treaty commissioners who acted formally at the behest of the Crown. So Treaties, the treaties were um, conducted with the language and the understanding that the commissioners represented the queen, right? Represented at that moment, Queen Victoria. So I, I actually grabbed some text from a particular treaty, Treaty 6, and this is how it starts, right? It says basically um, these are the articles of a treaty between Her Most Gracious Majesty the Queen of Great Britain and Ireland by her commissioners and the Plain and Wood Cree and the other tribes of Indians, um, inhabitants of the country within the limits here and after defined and described by their chiefs. So the treaties are understand to have to be an agreement or, or contract between the Queen and um, their Indigenous signatories. And so what this history does for treaty nations is set up and establish a special relationship, special legal relationship between themselves and the monarch um, with the understanding that the monarch has obligations to them and that those obligations are confirmed in the treaties um, and that Canada has the obligation to implement those obligations. So given that history, it is historic that the representative of the monarch, right, representative of the head of state, should herself now be Indigenous, even though the Inuit never themselves engaged in a historic treaty um, with Queen Victoria, for instance. So, but it is nonetheless um, important symbolically that... Um, the representative of the monarch herself, the Indigenous. Um, I also think it's really symbolically important because Mar of who Mary Simon herself is, right? So she's not simply or just a member of the Inuk, uh, Inuit community. She's not merely Inuk in that sense. She has been a constant advocate and political representative, a very effective one for the Inuit throughout her whole storied, varied career. Um, and so she is 
deeply familiar with uh, Indigenous politics, uh, not just Inuit politics. She has been a constitutional negotiator. Um, she has been a voice and an architect of the constitution that now recognizes Aboriginal and treaty rights. Uh, and so um, I find it very interesting um, that she um, was appointed um, to her current position, um, given her deep engagement as a constitutional actor in Canada. Thank you. So to wrap up our interview, now that you've touched on a little bit about how the Canadian government can promote reconciliation, how do you suggest that everyday Canadians like ourselves do our part in supporting Indigenous communities and taking our own steps towards reconciliation? This is a really interesting question. I get, I get asked by non-Indigenous students at McGill all the time. This is the question that I get asked, how can I help? And it's, a, it's an important question. It's a good question. It shows an intention to engage with people in a better way. And that's good. Uh, having someone just kind of show up in a, an Indigenous context and say, hi, I'm here to help. <laughs> that's actually not a selling point, right? And residential schools were set up by people who thought they were helping in a bizarre kind of way. So I always try to push students to, to rethink what it means to help expand and really sit down and think about what it does it mean to help. And so part of the answer to that question, I think, is take responsibility for your own learning. Part of the reality of growing up as a Canadian is that you didn't necessarily um, learn this history. You didn't learn um, what it meant to grow up in a place with a treaty or that there was a treaty or even what the terms of that treaty meant. So I think there is helping means taking responsibility for your own education. Um, so read the TRC's report, read Indigenous authors, read their novels, read their plays, read their stories, watch their documentaries, watch their movies, read the treaties, take a course, right? Do that work. Um, I think that that is helping. <laughs> I think that's what you have to do before you can actually engage with Indigenous peoples in a constructive way. Um, and I wanted to leave your listeners with a bit of an anecdote. Um, I sometimes ask my students to you know, answer a few questions, just give me a few answers to questions that I pose about um, the courses that I teach. And I asked them once or a few times, um, you know, why did you take this course on Indigenous politics in Canada? And one of the best responses I ever got from a student was this, the following. And it was, I go home at Christmas and my grandpa at the dinner table says all kinds of stuff about the Native people he sees downtown. And I just don't know what to say. I just don't know what to say. So the student says, writes, you know, I'm here because I need to figure out what the, like, what the conversation is going to be with my granddad at next Christmas dinner. And I thought, that is brilliant. That is exactly what people should be doing. So I counsel students who want to help learn, read, and then engage with those people, those people who you're close with, these friends of yours. Um, 
you know, talk to your family member at the dinner table, the one who's saying jokes that aren't actually all that funny, to share with them some of the things that you kind of learned on your own journey. Things like, like, did you know that this treaty says this? Did you know that the town down the road, like this happened in the town down the road 30 years ago or five years ago? Did you know this thing that I always thought was true or just assumed was true actually isn't true? So I think that is, that is very useful and helpful engagement. That, to me, is helping. Thank you so much, Professor Schultz, for participating in today's episode and educating us on Canada's Indigenous people and some of the challenges that they face. Um, The Canadian government and Canadians still have a tremendous amount of work to do when it comes to dealing with and acknowledging the past and reconciliation of Indigenous peoples. Great. Thank you so much for your time. We are already at the end of this episode. Thank you for watching today's episode and your interest in Canada. If you would like to find out more about the work of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and dive deeper into Canadian politics and other topics, you will find interesting publications on our homepage and social media. Thank you and we look forward to welcoming you back for another episode of Canada mit See.